0: This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producer's credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtafer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners, on this edition of the program, a previously Patreon-exclusive edition of the show, featuring an interview with Dr. Catherine Harvey about her book, A Self-Fulfilling Prophecy, The Saudi Struggle for Iraq. The book tells the story of Saudi foreign policy with regards to Iraq after the US invasion in 2003 and its paranoia about Iran, as well as how that paranoia may have led to Saudi foreign policy blunders. This conversation is particularly interesting in light of the changing Saudi-Iranian relationship today. So without any further ado, let's get right to it with Catherine Harvey on her book, A Self-Fulfilling Prophecy, The Saudi Struggle for Iraq. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really, really fascinated to be speaking with, That really happy to be speaking with. Uh, She's a scholar of the Middle East and author of the book, A Self-Fulfilling Prophecy, The Saudi Struggle for Iraq, uh, which initially it's a book uh, that that started as a dissertation and it's a really fascinating book. Uh, Catherine Harvey or uh, as some people know her, uh, Kitty Harvey, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. I'm delighted to have this opportunity to speak with you about the book. I'm so happy that it resonated with you. And that you um, want to discuss it. I spent, as you pointed out, as you point out, it started as my PhD dissertation, which means that by definition, it was um, many, many, many years in the making. <laughs> so it's really exciting that it's out and that it's something that we can talk about now.
0: So, in regards to your background, maybe you could talk a little bit about how you became interested in the topic of Iraq, how Saudi Arabia and the Iraq relationship has panned out over the years. And just how the dissertation initially came about.
1: Yeah, that's a really um, I'm obviously biased. Um, the actually much of <laughs> much of the book is about kind of biases, personal biases. Um, anyway, I'm I, I, I'm biased because I think that it's sort of my journey to how I got here is, um, I think fascinating. At the start of my PhD, um, I was I did a PhD in Middle Eastern studies, so sort of by definition, I was you know interested in the Middle East. Um, what, but I didn't... what
0: out of curiosity, what led you to Middle East studies? Because I yeah. think, like me, uh, you don't necessarily have like a uh, a background in the the Middle East yeah. or family or what. So I'm always interested to figure out why uh, we became interested in these topics.
1: Absolutely, and that's a, and that's a good question too. And that is also a journey. And so, kind of going, kind of really back to the beginning. I've always been good at studying foreign languages and back in high school I studied French and Spanish and was good at it and enjoyed doing it Um, in my first year of college which um, I started college in 1999 um, and in my first year of college I um, continued with French and Spanish and then the beginning of my sophomore year I was like you know I should really see what I'm made of and try a non-Western language. And, you know, maybe in retrospect, Chinese would have been, you know, the more obvious choice, but I oftentimes, um, you know, go on my own particular path and I decided to take Arabic. And so this was just to situate ourselves. This was September 2000, the beginning of my sophomore year. And so taking Arabic in the, um, in September 2000, choosing to take Arabic in September 2000 was a really unusual choice. And I uh, received one of two responses that year. People would either say, oh, how interesting. I've never known anybody to study Arabic. Or people would say, why the hell are you doing that? <laughs> and it was only the following year, which my junior year, which started, of course, with September 2001, that everything changed and people said, oh, well, you were so prescient to take Arabic. And I was like, Yeah, you know, thanks very much. But in that year before 9-11, I just really loved my Arabic language class. It's a really hard language but I just really enjoyed it. Um, and actually, and I was a history major in college that got me to studying Arabic, got me, I didn't know anything about the Middle East, um, got me to studying um, Middle Eastern history. And I loved that. So I kind of fell into this kind of in this roundabout way. And actually funnily enough, on the very first day of, of Arabic back in September 2000, we had this great Arabic professor, this kind of ebullient Lebanese guy. And he kept saying that first day, Arabic is for life. Arabic is for life. It's not like French or Spanish. You can learn those languages in a year. Arabic, you have to study for a lifetime. Um, and I can tell you that 22 years later, I mean, even now, I still study Arabic. It is truly for life. <laughs> so that's that was really, truly the beginning of my journey. And zooming up, this is also a bit of a story But I, having developed this interest in the Middle East, I decided to apply for an internship with the State Department in the region. Long story, very short, in the summer of 2002, so this was nine months after the invasion of Iraq, sorry, nine months after 9-11 and nine months months before the invasion of Iraq, I ended up at the State Department in in the Middle East and of all places, Saudi Arabia (laughs) (laughs) And I found it fascinating. And that was really kind of where my interest in Saudi foreign policy began. Um, And then, but funnily enough, I also joke that I'm the only State Department intern who as a result of her internship decided to join the military as opposed to the State Department Um, that summer in Saudi Arabia. I became friends um, with a couple, with a handful. Needless to say, there were not a whole lot of 21-year-old Western women running around um, and it was hard to become friends with sort of the local population. The people that I did become friendly with were um, a bunch of sort of mid-ranking U.S. Army officers. And I thought to myself, I could do that. Um, meanwhile, I come from a Navy family, actually. Um, no, I mean, from kind of my father had served, my grandfather had served way before I was born. So there was sort of that legacy, but I hadn't really particularly been exposed to the, to the military. Um, and, uh, but in any case, all those things combined, knowing that we are that the U.S. was about to spend a lot of time in the Middle East, um, the, um, I decided to join the, the Navy. Um, and so that's what I did. I was an intel officer, um, from 2004 to 2009 after I graduated from college. Um, I served in the Middle East. I also served in Europe, um, and on a ship out of Norfolk, Virginia. Um, and so I had that sort of d- detour. Um, I then left the military, did my master's degree, the Arab Spring took place. The Arab Spring really kind of, um, all of that change that took place as a result of the Arab Spring, um, it kind of prompted me to go back to school again to get my PhD. Um, And that's all what has led to the book. But to get to your original question, I didn't actually really know much about Iraq. What I was really interested in was Saudi foreign policy. And it was only by beginning, this research and we can, um, I kind of, um, I was interested in kind of the Saudi Iran relationship. Um, and I was interested in particular in kind of the period of my military service, again, those two thousands, the period of the Iraq war, the height of the the Iraq war. Um, I was um, interested in what the Saudis were doing to try to counter sort of growing, um, Iranian, um, interest in the region, uh, sorry, in, in, in influence in the region. Um, and, um, and you know, I kind of took it for granted that Iraq, that a Shia led Iraq, that post 2003, you know, a Shia led Iraq was sort of just naturally aligned with Iran or beholden to Iran. I sort of just took that for granted as most people do. Um, and um, as I really began my research, I really found, and this is what the book is all about, as I really began my research, I the, I really found a different reality um, that the Iraqis were reaching out to the Saudis and that the, that the Americans were putting pressure on the Saudis to engage with the, the with Iraq, and it was the Saudis that were not playing. That the Saudis were the ones that um, were um, were absent from Iraq, and I was really confused why. Um, and I discovered I realized you know that story has not been told at all. Um, and it goes a long way to explain what took place um, in in that period. Um, and so, uh, so again, kind of starting my PhD, um, my whole career is sort of a uh, is sort of a, um, a, a kind of a story of various different journeys. The PhD was also very much a journey, um, and I discovered that um, I needed to learn a lot more about Iraq to be able to tell the story. Um, But um, but that's ultimately the story that I told. So that's that's a long introduction.
0: (laughs) So then with with regards to the Iraq war and Saudi Arabia, just to give people background. My understanding is that Saudi Arabia was not as keen on the Iraq war. Uh, Why was that?
1: Yeah, you are absolutely correct that the Saudis um, were not as keen, but there's a twist there um, or there's some nuance there. Um, and what I really enjoyed about this research project was that this story is not black and white. Um, there's so much nuance, um, on the Saudi side, on the American side, on the Iraqi side. Um, the, um, and so, yeah, you're absolutely correct that the Saudis were not, um, keen, um, on, uh, the U S the George W. Bush plan to invade Iraq, you know, and, um, to get rid of Saddam Hussein. That said, um, and actually, I've been sort of just like working on actually just even today, kind of an op-ed on this. You know, recognizing that March marks the 20th anniversary of, of the invasion. It's useful to point out that um, the Saudis actually really did want Saddam to be removed from power. Um, the um, the Saudis had been working, you know, as a result of Saddam's invasion of Kuwait in 1990. Um, the Saudis broke irrevocably irrevocably with Saddam Hussein they felt deeply threatened by Saddam they hated Saddam they wanted him gone um Americans told me this Saudis told me this um throughout the 1990s they had been working with um with the Americans um, and um you know the Egyptians and the Jordanians and the Brits um to get rid of Saddam and the plan at that time was to was to foment a coup you know, was to uh, do something via covert action. Um, you know, there are various different coup attempts in the 1990s. They all failed. Um, the Americans, the CIA, came to the conclusion that, you know, Saddam was coup proof, that, you know, a coup wasn't going to work. Um, the Saudis sort of retained um, hope for a coup option. Um, but the Saudis were never, you um, we're never behind an invasion, not because they wanted Saddam to remain in power, but because um, it just wasn't the Saudi style, particularly at that time. This is you know long before MBS. You know, at that time, the Saudis were much more subtle, much more, um, you know, they quite frankly acted much at that time, much more like a um, second tier power. You know, um, you know, they didn't they weren't looking to uh, kind of take huge military gambles. Um, they wanted to do something you know, behind the scenes, um, something the least dis- something that would be the least disruptive possible. You know, all they were looking for, um they were not looking to blow the place up. They certainly were not looking to remake the Iraqi political system. All they were looking for was to remove Saddam Hussein and to have him replaced by, you know another um sunni arab uh, dictator
0: what what was their, how why did they view just for people that may be out, yeah. it, why would they view? Saddam and and the Ba'athist party as a threat.
1: Yeah. And so I think that, you know, I don't think it was so much the Ba'athist party. You know, I think they probably, I'm, you know, kind of surmising here. Um, I don't think that they necessarily, I don't think they necessarily love the Ba'athist party. Um, The, um, I don't think they necessarily saw the Ba'athists as the, as a threat. But um, but the person of Saddam Hussein, that he was just simply megal- megalomaniacal, if I've pronounced that correctly, they saw him as a megalomaniac. Um, the, uh, you know, they were, um, you know, even in the late 1970s, before his invasion of Iran, he was sort of becoming kind of uh, bigger and bigger you know kind of imposing himself more and more on the Arab scene. Um, and they saw him as sort of a new Gamal, Gamal Abdel Nasser, you know, who was the Egyptian president um, you know until until his death, Nasser's death in nineteen seventy. Um, and the Saudis had felt very threatened by Nasser, you know, who was this um Arab nationalist and um the uh, and and Nasser um, you know, had uh, you know can decry the Saudis as reactionaries. And so they saw Saddam as very much sort of the same. Um, you know, sort of cast from the same, you know, in, in the same caste as Nasser, somebody who's ultimately going to be a problem for them. Um, and then so they already saw that. And then when he invaded Kuwait, um, he, he did something that was like so beyond the pale, in terms of what was kind of accepted practice among the Arab states, um, that, uh, that the Saudis uh, would never be able to trust him again. Um, you know, I think that there was a deep sense of vengeance on their part, but also I mean just quite frankly a very deep sense of very deep s- sense of threat that um that Saddam Hussein was not somebody that they could live with um now, I think that um they ultimately um came to be quite regretful because as um as threatened as they felt by Saddam when the u s did ultimately get rid of Saddam and um, what then came into being was a Shia-led system.
0: Right. Um, I-, I was going to say, it's yeah. it's almost like they would prefer a, a weak Saddam Hussein over empowering the Shia of Iraq.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I think they had seriously had buyer's remorse. They seriously had buyer's remorse. Um, and it's kind of like, be careful what you wish for, um, you know, big time, you know, because they were pressing throughout the 90s, They were pressing the U.S. to get rid of Saddam, get rid of Saddam, get rid of Saddam, get rid of Saddam. And the Clinton and the George H.W. Bush administration, again, there was this covert action, this covert um, action program in place between these various countries. Um, The George H.W. Bush and then the Clinton administration, um, they were on board with, you know, again, just replacing Saddam with a kind of nicer Sunni Arab dictator. You know, the Saudis and the Americans were aligned on that. You know, the, the goal was not, Democracy in Iraq. The goal was um, just a nicer Saddam, um, and um, you know a less a, you know crazy Saddam. And um, but so uh, when the Saudis, when finally an American administration was dead set on getting rid of Saddam, um, that administration did it in a way that that was that from the Saudi point of view it was completely anathema. Um, now, I argue in the book that, um, and this is where the self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, comes in, that um, this Shia-led system was not nearly the threat that the Saudis believed it to be, um, but. Um, why, why would the sound for,
0: for, for yeah. again, for a LA lay audience, why would, what, why did the Sunni Uh, Kingdom of of Saudi Arabia, why would they be uh, afraid of a a sort of Shia Iraq? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. And of course, it all goes back to Iran. Um, The, uh, you know, since the 1970s, you know, actually, even since before the 1979 revolution in Iran, um, you know, the Shah in the 1970s, the Shah of Iran and the Saudis were sort of um, ostensibly partners um, but even at that time, the Saudis were very deeply wary of Iran. Um, you know, and I think that the crux of it, there are a couple of different aspects, but the crux of it is that Iran is just so much bigger than Saudi Arabia. Um, and particularly in the seventies and eighties, um, you know, it had so much more military power than did the Saudis. I mean, the Saudis, in, particularly in the seventies, um, and it's only recently that the Saudi Arabia has like really of consolidated as a country if you will um, in the saw in the 70s um, you know, Saudi Arabia was still you know only you know uh, kind of a handful of million people. Um, it was still very you know very much developing um, and didn't have kind of a military force to speak of. Um, you know that's changed today it has definitely much more of a military, force but you know as you can see in the war in Yemen it's it's still more, so Saudi Arabia is still much more of a paper tiger than than anything else it doesn't really have that much in the way of military military capability um and so um the you know Iran is just a bigger country with more military capacity and the saudis recognize that um and have always felt um you know threatened as a result um the, um, that, you know, if if Iran is able to get its way, it you know, it it will be to the detriment of Saudi Arabia. But in addition, um, the, um, you know, Iran not only is a far bigger country, but it's a Persian country, and it's a Shia country. And that just sort of those elements of difference, you know, make, um, make Iran very much and make the Iranians very much, you know, the other um, in the eyes of the Saudis, um, that you know, uh, you know, the Arab states have plenty of differences among themselves, um, and can definitely feel threatened. You know, can definitely threaten each other. But there's still sort of a sense of being part of an Arab family, um, where whereas Iran is not part of that Arab family, and and that kind of difference, that sort of othering, has only deepened um, the sense of threat that the Saudis feel coming from Iran. Um, and, um, and so why should, but, but, you know, the Iraqi Shia, um, are, are, are overwhelmingly Arab. So why are the Saudis, you know, why would the Saudis be fearful of an, uh, of a Shia led Arab Iraq? Um, well, there's a, uh, a, a deep seated stereotype in the Arab world. I mean, very longstanding, you know, that, that imputes sort of, uh, loyalty on the part of the Arab Shia to Iran. Um, this is just, again, to, to repeat myself, just a very uh, deeply ingrained stereotype um, of the Arab Shia um, held by many Arab Sunnis. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it, it this stereotype sort of predisposed kind of um, uh, primed the Saudis to see a Shia-led Iraq as just sort of again naturally beholden um, to, to to Iran. That you know the Shia are, Arab Shia are loyal to Iran, so an Arab a Shia-led Iraq is loyal to Iran, um, and that um, as a result, you know Iran um, again, which the Saudis had just see as a sort of expansionist power. You know the the the, the Saudis kind of interpreted. Um, kind of the Shia rise to power in Iraq as just sort of, uh, uh, an example, a case of Iranian expansionism.
0: I see. I see. So it's, I, I mean, in some ways it's similar to how, well, I think it's just a case of, of paranoia in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the, you know, and I, I think we see this in America as well. You know, there's yeah. been, uh, different groups of people over the years that we've had paranoia about, like, um. You know, I always go back to like World War II. We were, we were uh, fighting with the Japanese, right? So, you know, there there were the internment camps, famously for Japanese Americans. There's this idea of, oh, well, these people may have, you know, loyalties to another country. Um, is is that the type of thing that plays into, I guess, Saudi, Saudi thought when it comes to the uh, Iraqi Shia? Is just a sort of paranoia that may cloud their own uh, foreign policy decisions.
1: I th- I think that's exactly right. Um, and you know, and I go, you know, given that this book was um, originally a PhD dissertation, um, you know, it has a theoretical framework, <laughs> um, and uh, the you know, and I draw not only from you know the realist school of international relations, um, but also from the constructivist and political psychology um, schools of international relations um, as well, you know, and kind of long story short, really from a political psychology perspective. Um, the, um, you know, political psychologists and cognitive psychologists, you know, in general, you know, say that, you know, uh, perception, human perception and, you know, the leaders of a state, the foreign policy decision makers in a state, whether it's the United States or Saudi Arabia or anywhere else, you know, are are ultimately human beings. Um, Human perception um, is necessarily subjective. You know, we're subjective beings. Um, and our world is so inherently complex um, that, you know, we make sense of our world, um, all of us, you know, again, whether you or me or, you know, the leaders of a state, we make sense of our world um, through the lens of our pre-existing beliefs.
0: And um, our, things like our cultural biases.
1: Things like our cultural biases. You know, we have all sorts of biases, Um and you can kind of group those biases, just kind of very broadly, into sort of two gata- categories: um, motiva- motivated biases and unmotivated biases. Um, and motivated biases um, lead us to believe, lead us to see what we want to see. That's sort of you know wishful thinking, you know. And so that leads us to see what we want, you know, via the prism of our interests and our emotional needs. Um, you know, kind of like I support. Uh, you know, it, it's probably not a, a huge surprise that in the last election um, I uh, supported, in the last US election, I supported Joe Biden. Um, and, you know, so I, I really wanted Biden to win. And I was, you know, and, and sort of, as a result, like I'm kind of biased to kind of see, you know, Biden in, in, a, in, a, in a better light. Um, but so those are motivated biases, you know, seeing what we want to see. Unmotivated biases are seeing what um, uh, we expect to see. Um, And that's, again, kind of based on our pre-existing beliefs. So that's where the kind of cultural factor comes in. You know, everything that I've been brought up to believe, um, you know, I am a, quite frankly, a white American woman, everything that I've been brought up to believe as a, you know, middle class white American woman is kind of the way that I see the world. And that's sort of, again, those sort of pre-existing beliefs and that kind of unmotivated bias. Yeah, it's,
0: it's sort of like um, what the sociologist Pierre Bourdieu calls habitus. Like we have all these unconscious sort of um, biases and and just how we, our, our own way of thinking is informed by how we were brought up and things like that. And we don't even really think about it that often.
1: Exactly. And, um, and to deny it would be just to deny our humanity, you know, um, or just to deny the way that, you know, that we function. Um, and so, you know, the Saudis as well, um, you know, I, I think it was just a completely, you know, again, this, this stereotype uh, about the Arab Shia being loyal to Iran. Is right. just so-, so
0: in other words, the Arab Shia will support Iran and that will help Iran uh, basically yeah. exploit the, the political vacuum in Iraq that'll lead to, you know, oh, Iran's going to be able to advance its expansionist agenda in the Gulf that that's going to hurt yeah. us. That's their thinking, right?
1: exactly and 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 of course you know it would be incorrect to say that iraq that iran did not intervene in iraq um you know on the heels of the invasion you know the iranians absolutely did you know begin to establish a, a presence in, in post-saddam iraq where it became um uh um an issue however in terms of kind of the saudi perception is that the Saudis perceived that that the Iranians were effectively just taking the whole place over and turning Iraq into a vassal state. um, Whereas I think the reality was much more limited. Um, And I think the the, um, kind of a better way to, in in, in more sort of concrete terms um, for listeners who haven't read the book, um, you know, the real kind of turning point or the real sort of example of this is that um, in um, in 2005, Iraq had its first set of its first elections. They had re- elections in January 2005 and elections in December 2005. Um, and Iraq has a ma- a majority Shia population. The Iraqi Shia constitute about 60 percent um, of, uh, of the Iraqi people. Um, now, that is Uh, something that actually was not widely accepted either among Iraqi Sunni Arabs or or within the wider Arab world. There was sort of this narrative in 20th century Iraq and the 20th century Arab world. There was this narrative that Iraq between Arab Sunnis and Kurdish Sunnis, that there was actually a Sunni majority in the country. Now, this is clearly kind of a self-serving narrative on the part of Iraqi Sunnis, um, but th- th- I think that this was, you know, a, kind of a this was deeply believed, um, but it wasn't true, um, and I think that that was something. I think that that was something that the Saudis, quite frankly, believed that Iraq actually had a, a Sunni majority. Um, so, but fast forward to two thousand five, um, when you know Iraq ha- held its first free elections, um, and the Arab Shia began to, won, to win the most seats in parliament because they are in fact a majority of the Iraqi people. This went completely against um, what Iraqi Sunnis, most Iraqi Sunnis took to be the case and what the Saudis took to be the case. Um, and instead of, you know, the uh, Iraqi Sunnis and Saudis, you know, instead of kind of, you know, in this sort of shock at the Shia winning in these elections, prevailing in these elections, you know, instead of, um, you know, instead of saying to themselves, oh, you know, I guess we are just wrong all those years. (laughs) We were just wrong, um, for the Saudis, um, and for many Iraqi Sunnis as well, a, a, a more compelling, um, uh, explanation for what was taking place, the Saudis, you know, again, believing that the Iranians were just sort of inherently expansionist, that Iran is expansionist power, um, that, you know, the Saudis felt that a a much more compelling explanation um, for the Shia prevailing in the elections was that Iranians were infiltrating into the country and voting in the elections. Um, A a
0: sort of um, a, a sort of conspiratorial narrative arises. Yeah,
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, the Saudis believe that, you know, millions, I mean, this is what many of my interview, interviewees told me, you know, American interviewees, and Iraqi interviewees, um, the um, that, um, you know, I also actually found this in WikiLeaks, um, you know, the, the US cables that were released by WikiLeaks, um, the, um, you know, the Saudis believe that millions of Iranians had infiltrated into Iraq to vote in the elections. Um, of 2005 and that that's and that that's why the Shia prevailed in those elections. And so this was an instance of Iran you know taking advantage of the. US invasion and the. US and the political system that the. US was putting into place to take over the country.
0: And this has real consequences too because I mean uh, eventually you have uh, uh, King Abdullah al-Assad basically refusing to engage with Iran's yeah. prime minister.
1: Yeah, exactly Maliki. Um, and they are the two, um, I know this is a podcast, but I have a, a copy of the book here. And if they are the two um, figures on the cover of my book, al uh, Maliki and King Abdullah, the late King Abdullah of, Sa- of Saudi Arabia. And um, and you're absolutely correct um, that um, there's had real world consequences because then in the aftermath, or, you know, those elections took place in 2005. Um Nur al-Maliki became Iraq's first permanent post-Saddam prime minister. In 2006, um, the Maliki government um, began to try to engage with the Saudis. Um, And Maliki went to Saudi Arabia um, on his first trip abroad as prime minister. And that was very much a a very um, deliberate choice on the part of Maliki and his advisors and his government for Maliki to go to Saudi Arabia on his first trip abroad to signal we are, Iraq is an Arab country. Uh, you know, Iraq is is suffering from this considerable sectarian warfare. There's great symbolism of the Shia prime minister going to Saudi Arabia as sort of the, the center of the Sunni Arab world. Um, meanwhile, the, the Iraqis knew that the um, Saudis had been the most alienated of all of Iraq's neighbors. And so there this was um this was a very deliberate choice on the part of Maliki and his government for him to go to Saudi Arabia on his first trip abroad. Um and um and and the Saudis w- received him appropriately um on that first trip abroad. Um, but things went sideways very quickly thereafter, um, and refused ever to engage with him again. And and Abdullah came to believe that Maliki was, you know, nothing short of an Iranian stooge, um, even though that was far from uh, the reality. You know, Maliki had plenty of shortcomings. And I sometimes joke that I'm the only person in Washington who has something halfway decent to say about Maliki, Um, but he was not um, an Iranian stooge. He was, um, I mean, he really was and was then and is today an Iraqi nationalist. Um, He has certainly grown closer to the Iranians but he was not particularly close to the Iranians in 2005, 2006, 2007. Um, And the Americans had backed him to be prime minister because they believed that he was not um, close to the Iranians. Um, And um, I argue that, you know, the Saudis, um, but uh, you know, Abdullah Abdullah believed what Abdullah believed that Malik was an Iranian stooge. And again, this this is very much in keeping with this sort of stereotype um, of the Arab Shia. Um, it's not a surprise that this would make sense to Abdullah. Um, And, um, and Abdullah uh, refused to engage. Um, And, um, and as you point out, it had, it had real consequences. Um, The, uh, you know, Maliki came to feel very threatened um, by the Saudis and not just Maliki, but I mean, I think that, you know, most, at least many, you know, Iraqi political actors came to feel very, very deeply threatened by the Saudis because the the
0: irony of this being that this would only, you know, uh, push Iraq further into the hands of Iran.
1: Exactly. No, exactly. And that's why the book is called A Self-Fulfilling Prophecy. You know, and in the writing of the book. um, And again, it was sort of uh, this year's long process. um, The uh, in the writing of of this book, it's really a tragic story, you know, Um, because You know, again, as I was kind of writing the book, you know, I could see like Abdullah doing exactly what um, kind of creating the situation that he was trying to avoid, you know, i.e. Iraq becoming sort of kind of falling into Iran's orbit. Um, And um, and so it was this tragic situation. Um, And I should say that the you know, the the, the Iraqis were reaching out to the Saudis, but the Americans also, very importantly, we're putting con- considerable pressure on the saudis to engage with iraq you know the, the george w bush administration um and it's really important to point out that the uh, that the saudis felt very deeply betrayed um by the bush administration and sort of understandably so um given that um bush at at al-, al had like had completely disregarded saudi interests in invading iraq um the um the uh, and the Saudis felt very deeply betrayed as a result of that. So you know, some years later, 2006, 7, 8, when the Americans came to the Saudis to press them to engage, you know, Abdullah like wasn't playing. He was like, well, you know, you I mean, I don't think he said this, you know, directly, because <laughs> um he was much more subtle. Um, but you know, it's kind of like, you know, you told us to fuck off, so we're gonna tell you to fuck off, you know, forgive my language. Um and, um, you know, so, you know, the, the, the Saudis weren't playing. So, um, the, uh, yeah. So anyway, it was, a sort of very tragic situation.
0: So if you could, how would you, if you were to have to explain this, um, or your thesis to, um, say a, a Saudi Arab who, uh, just had this view, right. That, oh, you, you know, um this was all an expansionist uh, power grab by the Iranians and they took advantage of the invasion. Uh, we can't trust the Iraqi Shia. Uh, h- how do you sort of push back on that? Like, what are the, I guess, um, evidential points you point towards?
1: Yeah, um, that, and that's actually a really good, like the evidentiary points. Um, the, uh, you know, first kind of pointing out that, you know, there is a difference between the Iraqi Shia and the Iranian Shia. Um, and this is where the nuance comes in because, you know, a Shia led Iraq was always going to be closer to Iran than a Saddam Hussein led Iraq, you know, that's without question or a Sunni Arab dominated Iraq. You know, in the 20th century, a Sunni Arab, you know, uh, Iraq had successive regimes dominated by Sunni Arabs and and Iraq always had, um, sort of a negative relationship with Iran. Um, and so that was always going to be different with a Shia led Iraq. Um, and, um, but that doesn't mean that, um, that again, that, 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 that the Shia of Iraq and the Shia of Iran are the same thing. They're not, and they have different interests and different cultures. You know, again, the Shia of Iraq are Arab, um, speak Arabic, have an Arabic culture, um, which is different from, you know, Persian speaking, Farsi speaking Iran with a, you know, predominantly Persian culture. Um, and, um, you know, so they're so there are different orientations there. There's a, a, definitely, a, you know, a, a more of a. There's a definitely, you know, the basis of a close friendship, but there are also different orientations, which means that there's always going to be, you know, kind of a difference between the two countries. Anyway, that's one thing. Um, but you know, and what I try to do in the book was show you know, what are the Iraqis, what was Maliki doing on the ground, to um, to demonstrate that he wasn't beholden to Iraq. To, to, to Iran um and sort of the two um in his first government um which was kind of from 2006 to 2010 um excuse me you know the things that he did to demonstrate again an independence from Iran um the uh he took on um this was not an American initiative this was his initiative um he t- in 2008 this was sort of the tail end of Iraq's sort of sectarian civil war, um, uh, by this point, the Sunni Arabs had turned on sort of the Sunni Arab extremist Al Qaeda, um, and um, and quite frankly, the Shia were beginning to, had begun to turn also against the Sh- you know Shia extremists, um, and um, and Maliki um, uh, made the decision to take on. Um, the Shia militias that were being backed by Iran um and he spearheaded um the the operation came to be known as charge of the Knights um and it was launched in in the southern city of Basra and then was continued it was like a month or a six week long operation but then it continued in Baghdad um and he um and 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 quite frankly um you know, the, the, these militias, um, were disarmed um, and um, it, and I think Iran saw this as a defeat for Iran's for its policy in Iraq. Now again, that there, you know there's a so there's some nuance there because yes, Maliki took on these militias. He also saw these militias as you know, a political rival to him. Um, so you know, this this was to the benefit of you know, Maliki the person. Um, but but regardless, um, it demonstrates but Maliki took them on and it again demonstrates and i don't think that he would have taken them on if he had been a you know an iranian stooge <laughs> you know again demonstrates an independence um and you know, and the second example that i would point to and i think it's an even more more telling example um and i will say that uh again this goes back to my um again I, maliki did plenty of um has plenty of shortcomings and is definitely authoritarian. Um, and I do not consider myself or want to be an apologist of, Ma- of Nouriel Maliki. Um, but in the 2010 elections, Iraq had parliamentary elections in 2010. Um, and this was the second round of parliamentary elections after 2005. Um, and I thought, I think this took considerable courage on Maliki's part. Um, the in the 2005 elections, all of the Shia parties had coalesced to form a Shia coalition. Um, in 2010, Maliki broke from the other Shia parties. Um, by this point, Maliki had really established himself as sort of like you know a you know a a, a rising leader, um, and he broke from these other from the other Shia parties and established his own coalition. Um, and he was under tremendous pressure from the other Shia parties and also from the Iranians to reverse course and to join this coalition. And I was
0: going to say, you're you're talking about the 2010 period, that 2010, 2011 is very important because you're you're seeing the withdrawal of a lot of the U.S. forces, uh, resurgence of Sunni attacks. Then you have, you know, the war in in Syria going on, which plays into things.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um. The, uh, and this is right before that um and it because uh, uh, so Iraq's uh, elections in 2010 it, like take place in 2010 and then at kind of the, at the very end of 2010 the, the Arab Spring kicks off and as you point out in it's the following year that Syria really deteriorates into civil war um but the um uh, but but anyway Iraq uh Maliki chose not to join these other Shia parties in a coalition, um, despite the fact that he was under tremendous pressure from Iran to do so. You know, and again, I think that goes to, um, you know, it kind of indicates his willingness to be independent of Iran and to buck Iranian pressure um, at that time. Um, to your point, um, the uh, from the Iraqi Shia point of view, um, you know, there's, a I think, a dominant view on the part of the Iraqi Shia, and this was certainly Maliki's view. Um, the, um, you know, that the Saudis intervened, consider, you know, the Iranians intervened considerably in the 2010 elections, but that the Saudis also intervened considerably in the elections um, and that the Saudis were doing everything that they could to get their people into power. Um, and I mean, Maliki told me this, you know, in, in a written exchange that we had that, you know, that he believed this, um, you know, and quite frankly, you know, given my research, I'm kind of inclined to believe that this, that this view is correct. Um, and um, you know, I think by this point, um, the Saudis were doing anything they could to get rid of Maliki. Um, and in fact, Saudi sources of mine, close to the royal family have told me that Abdullah was doing everything they could to get rid of Maliki. Um, and um, in 2010, that did not come to pass because Maliki won a second term as prime minister. But to your point, the following year, um, marked the beginning of the war in, in Syria, Um, And from, uh, you know, kind of a dominant um, Iraqi Shia perspective, um, you know, the Saudis were not only intervening in Syria, we're not only backing rebels in Syria to overthrow Bashar al-Assad, but we're also intervening in Saudi, in in Iraq to overthrow um, Nur al-Maliki. So that's
0: interesting. So in the book, you're dealing with Saudi paranoia, but this sort of paranoia ends up arising with... The Iranians as well. Uh, I mean, because uh, Maliki uh, ends up seeing, you know, um, Saudi's involvement in, in Syria and trying to remove Assad is, oh, you know, they're coming for me next.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And th- that, that's absolutely correct. And that's, um, you know, what I argue in the book that, you know, I, I have this kind of part of this framework, part of the, the theoretical framework I have is sort of I discuss, you know, kind of what uh, an enemy image, you know, and, and in short, this sort of enemy image, and this kind of is taken from the political psychology and constructivist um, angle that I use, that um, it's kind of projecting another country as an enemy. Um, but, you know, all information is interpreted um, to buttress the view that the other country is an enemy.
0: That and, once- and eventually this leads to... I mean, this kind of paranoia ends up leading to an impossibility with regards to diplomacy. You can't, I mean, they become more and more adversarial. Diplomacy degrades.
1: Exactly. It kind of spirals, like kind of out of control. And I kind of argue that with regard to um, Saudi Arabia and Iraq, um, this this was the case. And the tragedy um, that, you know, from the Saudi point of view, you know, I, I argued that you know the Saudis at this time, you know, and you could probably say today as well, um, but particularly at that time, had this a- enemy image of Iran that Iran was inherently expansionist and that it had taken over Iraq, and, and and all information that the Saudis received was interpreted to buttress that view, even though there was plenty of information that contradicted that view. Um, but you know, in adhering to that image and then making decisions based on that image i.e. not to engage with Iraq, um, with a Shia-led Iraq. That um, caused the Iraqis, certainly Maliki, to feel very deeply threatened by the Saudis and began to generate an image, and began to generate on the part of Maliki an enemy image for the Saudis. And so Maliki began to interpret um, all information um, as indicating that the Saudis had this inherent animus toward him.
0: I think in the book you refer to this as the the sort of logic of enmity, right?
1: Yeah, the logic of enmity, which kind of comes from Alexander Wendt, who is one of sort of the foremost constructivist scholars, um, and um, and uh, and you know, kind of the basis of constructivism is you know that we um, you know that we don't we don't live in this objective reality. I mean, the the the, the constructivist can. Um, get a bad rap because it's like, we don't live in objective reality. I think, I I think the point for the constructivists is that we shape our reality, you know, that um, our actions and our beliefs shape our reality. And this is very much the case, um, you know, in this book between Iraq and Saudi Arabia, that, you know, this, this Saudi decision not to engage with Iraq, um, kind of, which the Saudi decision based on this perception that Iraq was you know, beholden to Iran and blah, 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 um, which was really a, pre- a misconception. But this, this King Abdullah's decision not to engage with Iraq then led to this um, um, uh, kind of conflict spiral with Iraq um, that, that I don't think otherwise would have taken place. you know. Um, so it, it really did very much shape the reality between the two countries.
0: Yeah, and I was going to say with the the constructivism angle, um, it, it, my understanding is that constructivists don't see everything as simply about material factors. There's also yeah. ideational factors, things like identity and you know how identity is formed, who the other is. That's going to affect how international relations play out as well.
1: Absolutely so um the constructivist critique to the to realists real as you point out realists are all about material factors you know kind of like what i kind of talked about at the beginning of our, of our conversation you know the fact that iran is bigger than saudi arabia the fact that iran has more military power than saudi arabia um the um the at least in the 1970s and 80s anyway um so those those variables are what the realists point to you know cut kind of power and size and um and such. And I would argue that those factors are really important.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, I think you even reference yeah. um Stephen Walt Origins of Alliances. And Steven's been on my show before and I'm I'm a big fan of yeah. his work. So you you sort of it's interesting because you use some of the work from the realists like Stephen Walt, but you're also yeah. pulling from the constructivists. And it's it's interesting to me because I think a lot of people see those two as, I mean, they're definitely opposed. They're distinct from each other. Right. But sometimes I think you can pull from both in different ways.
1: Absolutely. And the thing is, because I was sort of motivated m- most of all to tell this story um, about what actually happened between these two countries, um, I um, uh, so I, I was kind of motivated to by the empirical, you know, by explaining what happened and um, And then I had to kind of form a a theoretical, because it was a PhD dissertation, (laughs) I had to form a theoretical framework to kind of account for what happened. Um, And what I discovered was that, you know, military um, realist material variables by themselves did not explain the story. And by the same token, constructivist ideational variables by themselves did not tell the the full story that, you know, the two together were really necessary to to tell the story. Um, and, um, and actually even in the origin of alliances, Stephen Walt's um, book, which is great. Um, you know, he does not, um, I think it was written in the late eighties. So it was before the constructivist school had really kind of can, can coalesced. Um, but he actually uses in that book and his framework for threat uh, for, um, uh, balance of threat. He argues that, um, what states what determines states' behavior in the international system is not the balance of power, but the balance of threat, blah, blah, blah. Um, but um he sets out four variables to explain how states balance threat or um and one of them is um threat perception. Um and he doesn't point out in the book um that uh and it's understandable because the constructivist school hadn't really congealed yet, but threat perception is really very much a a constructivist ideational variable. Um, Because threat perception, again, is not an objective like material thing. It is based on, you know, how, you know, decision makers within a state perceive the environment that they're in. Um, And that goes to identity and norms and ideas and culture and everything. Um, So, you know, I, I found that really, you know, it was only bringing these two schools together that could really account for the story, you know, and that ultimately, um, and and the story that I tell is really all about those ideas, you know, where those ideas came from um, and what the ramification and how the kind of acting on those ideas then shaped the reality.
0: Before we close out, I guess, where do you see everything at now when it comes to, Iraq and and Saudi Arabia and just uh, where Iraq is at at this point uh, and how these things could have been avoided.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, how how these things could have been avoided. You know, I think that, quite frankly, King Abdullah was just so dead set against um, what took place in Iraq that um, it was really only once. Abdullah died, quite frankly, in 2015, that there was the possibility of a new opening. uh, between Saudi Arabia and Iraq. And that's very much what's what's happened. I think that there was no possibility of an opening between the two countries um, while Abdullah was still in power. Um, and fortunately for the relationship, you know, the Saudis um, s- spend all, all sorts of time really demonizing Maliki, um, much of which, you know, Maliki deserved because he definitely um, is no paragon of virtue. Um, but much of it was, again, based on this kind of preconception that he was a, an Iranian stooge, which was not the case. But um, but regardless, um, a few months before, Mal- before Abdullah died, Maliki also um, stepped down as prime minister of Iraq. And so the fact that both of these two kind of main characters um, kind of left the scene, departed the scene created the possibility of a new opening in the relationship and it definitely took a couple, a, a couple of years you know um the saudi the saudis did begin to engage actually sent an ambassador to reestablish relations in 2015 and sent an ambassador to iraq in 2016 um so that was definitely an indication of a of a change in policy um but um but it still took a couple of years um and it's only been um I think that the a, a turning point actually came in 2019 um from kind of 2020 on and there are a couple of different factors um the um from 2020 on there's there's really been kind of more of a um of a push to kind of um anyway there are a couple of different factors you know I think that the Saudis you know are so focused on vision 2030 they're you know, kind of economic development plan, and they recognize that you know Iraq could be you know an economic partner, you know, um, and um, so there's kind of that factor. Um, I say 2019 was was a turning point because that was the year that um, the Saudi facilities at Khuras and Abqaiq were targeted by um, by Iran, um, and the and the Trump administration didn't retaliate. Um, and I think that the Saudis began to really kind of uh, really kind of lost faith in the Trump administration in the. US. Um, and so really began to kind of reinterpret kind of look at their region again and kind of see like how can we um, create a relationship with with Iraq? Um, but in any case, long story short, um, the the Saudis and the Iraqis uh, are actually, uh building a pretty solid relationship today um you know it's still going slowly um but the border between the two countries was opened for the first time in 30 years in 2020 um there's a um a coordination council um between the two there's a saudi iraq coordination council um which uh is kind of the mechanism by which kind of the relationship is expanding and i think it meets on a fairly regular basis um, you know, I think that the Iraqis still sometimes say that, you know, it's, it could be going faster. Um, but I think that the Saudis really are um, taking steps to, to, to rebuild the relationship. Um, and um, and I think most of all, and this is the important point, <laughs> is that actually the Saudis, I think, recognize that um, what they by um, shunning Iraq, that they pushed it towards Iran. I think that the Saudis today recognize that, and so are taking a much more um, have a much more nuanced view of of Iraq today, and recognize that you know by demonizing you know the Iraqi Shia that that they they only push it towards Iran. That they have a much more kind of um, um, nuanced view of Iraq today.
0: So you know, I know I'm going to have listeners. Um... You mentioned that uh, Maliki, Maliki wasn't um, himself uh, a paragon of virtue, and I know I'm going to have yeah. listeners that say, "Well, you know, the Saudis aren't exactly the, the kingdom yeah. is not uh, a paragon of virtue either." So yeah. I guess people are going to say, "Well, why, what why should I care about this? Why is this story important to me as an American or European or someone outside of the sphere of the Middle East?" And I do think there are things we can learn, yeah, from this story, even if we view both sides of this story is necessarily having their own problems and not necessarily being the most uh, virtuous leadership in their countries.
1: Absolutely. And so, you know, I would say for anybody who's interested um, in the period of the Iraq war, um, the, you know, and interested in kind of the American experience in Iraq, you know, and um, the, uh, you know, it's, this is really sort of the first book that really accounts for kind of Saudi response to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, um, and um, and prior to this book, uh, you know, it was sort of just taken for granted that Iraq, you know, post two thousand three, a Shia-led Iraq was, you know, kind of was automatically aligned with Iran. You know, I argue that no, there's a lot more nuance there. Um, and this, the Saudis, you know, were really a very important factor. Again, this kind of absence on literature about Saudi Arabia has sort of contributed to a view that the Saudis really weren't much of a factor in what took place in Iraq after 2003. And I argue quite the opposite that the Saudis really were an important factor, and you know, are very, and th- their absence um, in Iraq, um, their decision not to kind of normalize relations, relationship the relations with Iraq post 2003. Um, was you know a, a a critical factor in in understanding why you know Iraq did kind of fall into Iran's orbit, um, and um, so so again anybody who's interested in um, uh, it, just in the period of the Iraq War, this is you know kind of a more critical information to quite frankly understand what went wrong you know in those years. Um, but for you know, for people who are not interested in the Iraq War and who are not interested in the Arab world, um, and um, and I totally get that not everybody is as into Middle Eastern politics as I am. Um, you know, it's also just a good um, cautionary tale um, for um, decision makers out there. You know, whether they're policymakers or um, you know in, in government um, or you know decision makers of a company or whatever. Um, You know, it's uh, the stories at at bottom, you know, a very human story about a decision maker, uh, King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia, who um, wouldn't change his mind, you know, who had a misconception about the situation, which which was sort of understandable that he had this misconception at the get go. Um, You know, a lot of his kind of Arab counterparts did as well.
0: You Um, cut out there for a second. Um, Could you repeat that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That, um, you know, Abdullah had this misconception um, and it was sort of understandable why he had this misperception at the start of this sort of story. Many of his other Arab counterparts did as well, um, leaders of other Arab states. But whereas these other Arab leaders really did, and I talk about this in the book, begin to change their mind about Iraq, you know, seeing what was taking place on the ground, um, Abdullah never did you know, he clung to this mis- misconception. And so the story, this the book is really a story, a very human story about what happens when we cling to mis- misconceptions or at the very least when we, when we refuse to change our minds and when we, um, you know, ref- when we really discount new information that contradicts, you know, our existing beliefs.
0: Yeah, and I was going to say as well, I think that it's a cautionary tale that any... Um, state actor or, or state power can fall victim to yeah. paranoid thinking, conspiratorial ideation that actually Absolutely. leads to a degradation of diplomacy. And I, I mean, I can't think Absolutely. of examples off the top of my head, but th- this isn't the only country that's done this. Saudi Arabia no. isn't the only country. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No. And I, um, and you know, I was writing, uh, I submitted my dissertation in the fall of 2019. Um, and so I was, you know, writing it in 2019 um and you know i was kind of up to my eyeballs in this in 2019 and that was really that was also um the year that the trump administration you know this was like the height of the trump administration's maximum pressure campaign on iran um you know and it sort of and again you know iran the iranians are no paragon of virtue either um the um but uh um the uh, but, but it sort of again everybody kind of the, the trump administration um, was just sort of spewing this sort of very simplistic narrative about iran um, again i'm not going to say that you know iran's no paragon of virtue the islamic republic is you know um, no paragon of virtue but but again these simplistic narratives about our adversaries and adhering to these simplistic narratives about our adversaries um, you know can really just lead to these conflict spirals you know Um, And as you say, um, you know, a a real degradation diplomacy. Now, of course, for the Trump administration's perspective, you know, yeah, sorry,
0: go ahead. I I was going to say, do you think there's anything that can be said in relation to like I I, I mean, I'm not sure if it's even worth bringing this up, but it's like when I hear some people talk about Yemen, um, it's almost like a lot of people don't even view Yemen as as being the real issue. It's all, oh, uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia. We don't even look at Yemen itself um, and yeah, the tragedy that, that's occurring there. Yeah,
1: exactly. And that's the thing. And that's the same thing kind of with um, with Iraq. You know, there um, there's so many people who um, are so focused on Saudi Arabia and Iran or Israel and Iran or the U.S. and Iran um, and don't really know much about Iraq or Yemen or any of these other countries. And so it's easy to say, oh, yeah, Iraq is just with with Iran and um you know
0: it's we, almost like they're treated as like uh, vassal states to X yeah. country or Y country, you know
1: right. And 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 there isn't much um th- there isn't sort of like the desire um to to really look at the nuance and like look at what the reality is in these countries, you know. Um, and um whereas you know there's always so much nuance on the ground. Um you know the uh uh and you know and um, adhering to, clinging to these sort of simplistic narratives, um, you know, it might make it easier to make policy. Um, you know, it's much easier to take a decision when you look at the world in black and white, um, but it doesn't lead to, like, good policy, I would argue.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, not just simplistic narratives, but almost like, like binary narratives, you know, where, yes. Yes. I, I mean, it's like what we were talking about with the the Shia of Iraq versus um, Persian Shia, like the, there's sort of nuances within nuances, you know, there's many different players at play, uh, even in in a country like Syria, you know, there's there's multiple factions at work. It's not just one group or the other group.
1: Absolutely, and that's where, you know, quite frankly, you know, that's what I find fascinating also about Iraq is that um, like a Shia led Iraq, you know, for the Iraqis today, their two most important relationships are the, the United States and Iran. Um, and, um, the, uh, and it's really hard to be friends with both the United States and Iran. Um, but, you know, but the U S but the, but the Iraqis really do want, you know, strong relationships with both, you know, they just, essentially
0: want to be non-aligned in a way.
1: They want to be non-aligned, you know, and it's the same thing with, you know, for the Iraqis with Iran and Saudi Arabia, you know, they, it's, it's a predominantly Arab Shia country. Um, you know, obviously, uh, maybe I shouldn't say predominantly, but you know, majority Shia country and predominantly Arab, you know they want to have a good relationship with you know with Shia Iran but they also want to have a good relationship with the arab states you know because they're both Shia and they're both an, an arab um and you know for them this is not a contradiction you know um but you you're absolutely correct they and this is what they say over and over again today is that they you know don't want to take part in axes and regional axes they want um to be friends with all their neighbors and they also want to bring um their neighbors together. They want to, you know, kind of, they're into rapprochement. You know, how do we bring our neighbors together? Um, because when our neighbors fight with each other, where they fight is in Iraq, where <laughs> their battlefield.
0: So real briefly here, um, the title of the book is Self-Fulfilling Prophecy. I know that word gets used in a, a, a sort of colloquial way, but you're using it in a very specific context and pulling from Robert Merton. So could you maybe explain the title and the reference to Robert Merton?
1: yeah absolutely and so um uh robert merton um was uh, one of the preeminent sociologists um of uh of the 20th century um and he coined the phrase self fulfilling prophecy um in one of his works from i think 1948 it was originally published in 1948 and today as you point out a self fulfilling pro- self fulfilling prophecy has just entered like the lexicon you know it, it's kind of used of the colloquialism but it actually again its basis is the sort of academic socio you know sociological concept um and merton defined a self-fulfilling prophecy as a false definition of the situation um evoking a new behavior that makes the originally false situation come true um i'm glad that i remembered that i think that's the way that he defined it um and um And when I came across that and kind of forming my framework, I was like, this fits the this Saudi Iraq case so well, Um, because um, I argue that the um, that King Abdullah, you know, and it had a false definition of the situation that Maliki was beholden to Iran. That was Abdullah's. um, um, That was Abdullah's definition of Maliki. That's how Abdullah saw Maliki. Um, I argue that that was not correct, um, based on kind of these steps that the, the kind of what, again, what Maliki was doing on the ground. Um, but again, Abdullah by acting on that false definition evoked a new behavior, um, that made the originally false definition come true. Um, and, you know, it, so I argue that Abdullah acting on that, um, on that definition caused Maliki to change his behavior, um, and, um, and you know, I I don't argue that Maliki ever became um, an Iranian stooge, but it, it's without question that Maliki um, absolutely became much more closely aligned with Iran. And I argue that that was a result of the threat that Maliki personally felt from Saudi Arabia. So again, the Abdullah originally had this false definition that Maliki was with Iran, um, but that false definition evoked a new behavior, um, i.e., Maliki began to feel threatened, and Maliki. Um, Ended up aligning himself with Iran. Um, and so that's the self fulfilling prophecy. And actually, building on Merton, um, social psychologists, and this is sort of a, a, um, a key theme in social psychology, is how kind of social stereotypes can become self fulfilling prophecies. And so, again, this is sort of, you know, um, this social stereotype becoming a self fulfilling prophecy with the case of Malachi, that he was this Shia leader who wasn't beholden to Iran, but he, you know, beca- absolutely became aligned with Iran.
0: I I notice a lot in in Middle East discourse, you know, people will throw out, uh, oh, this country is uh, an Iranian stooge or this country is a uh, Saudi stooge. You know, I I think even if you're not uh, like a Saudi aligned country, I think other countries other than Saudi Arabia um, make this mistake of saying, oh, um, this country is just working for the Saudis. Do you you see what I mean? Yeah,
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think that, um, you know, I think quite frankly, like, you know, I wish we would get I'm not sure this is like totally answering your question, but I wish that we would get away from like stooges because quite frankly, like
0: nobody's- Yeah, stooges are just like this idea that, oh, uh, this country is just at the behest and the beck and call of Saudi Arabia or Israel or Iran. It's almost like we take, we like reduce certain countries to nothing. We're just like, oh, they're just a vassal state. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. No, That's what I
0: was trying to get at. And I think a lot of countries do this, yeah.
1: Yeah, and to a certain extent, you know, there may be situations where it it's the case. I mean, uh, Bahrain, you know, is sort of economically dependent now in Saudi Arabia. So to a certain extent, uh, Saudi Ra- Saudi Arabia and Bahrain are, you know, per- pretty closely aligned. But they also see the kind of um, um, uh, maybe it's see the world in kind of similar in a similar way. Um, but um, but uh, yeah, no, I think it goes back to um, you know, you ca- like discounting, you know, the junior, uh, junior partners, you know, like in an alliance, you know, a, ju- a junior partner, or the junior ally might, of course, by definition, have um, less power, less freedom to, ma- to maneuver. Um, but they still have plenty, you know, there's still plenty of cases of like tails wagging dogs, you know, um, you know, they still have plenty of um, opportunity to sort of, um, manipulate their larger, um, uh, uh, partner. And so, so I guess what I'm saying, and again, I'm not sure this is like totally answering your question that, you know, in kind of just discounting sort of, um, a junior partner in alliance as, as, as a vassal or as a stage, which is so, um, easy to do. You really do, um, um, you, you, you refuse to see the agency, um, of kind of a, a junior partner and see like, you know, they may have less, you know, constrained freedom of maneuver, but they still have, you know, an ability to um, try to pursue their interests, you know?
0: No, that that does answer my question. I guess what I meant was just that, um, I think certain states get treated as like completely non-autonomous, like there's no autonomy whatsoever. Yeah. They're just a vassal state. And that to me is like a very unhelpful view to have.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, no, exactly. And I think that that's, you know, and Iraq is, you um, I think, I think that you're absolutely correct. And I think Iraq is a really great example that, you know, there's so many people who, you know, um, observers, um, who don't really know much about Iraq because Iraq's a really complicated place. And it's just really easy to say, you know, Iraq is with Iran, you know, and, um, the, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really easy just to say, Um, you know Iraq's with Iran and it has been since 2003 you know whereas like the reality is like you know there's just the reality is just much more complex you know and I think that that you're that's I agree with you that that's um uh there's a tendency to to all these countries are complex you know um and um we um but um but yeah we we kind of don't recognize that or we kind of like we look at saudi arabia and iran whatever
0: well hey uh kitty harvey i want to thank you again for coming on parallax views how can my listeners get a hold of your book keep up with your work and uh what do you hope they get out of the conversation we've been having
1: yeah uh, first of all thanks so much for having me this has been really fun um and thank you for um yeah humoring me as i kind of go down all these rabbit holes and just kind of Talk about my research. Um, so again, the book is a self-fulfilling prophecy: the Saudi struggle for Iraq. Um, it is available on Amazon, um, the uh, or wherever you buy your books. Um, the uh, I um, I also have articles out there. You can Google my. I do not have a website actually. I'm, that's actually something that's high on my list for um for 2023 is actually. Um, putting together a website, which will be um, a receptacle for all of my writings, but you can Google my name, Katherine Harvey, K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E, Harvey, H A R B E Y. Um, and kind of moving forward, um, I've actually, in my own research, um, I've become sort of more and more focused on um, Iraq and kind of, kind of where Iraq fits in, you know, Iraq's foreign policy, and kind of what we were just talking about a little bit a few minutes ago about kind of Iraq's kind of non-aligned, um, you know, um, policy, so to speak. Um, you know, how does Iraq nav- navigate a region that is frequently, you know, riven by, you know, rival axes? You know, that's a difficult place for Iraq to be. Um, but um, but it's kind of fascinating. Um, and actually, I plan, if you can believe it. Um, I did my first trip to, to Baghdad last year, um, soon after the book was published. Um, and, um, and if you can believe it, I'm planning on going back in March and I will, um, I should be in Iraq, uh, for the 20th anniversary of the invasion. (laughs) So, so, uh, I'm hoping that there'll be some, some more articles that come out of that.
0: Well, thank you again, Catherine Harvey, for coming on Parallax Views.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Catherine Harvey, author of A Self-Fulfilling Prophecy, The Saudi Struggle for Iraq. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. My apologies for the lack of content released so far this month, Uh, but between the holiday and my birthday coming up here, I've been trying to take a little bit of time for myself. Nonetheless, there will be more shows released later in the month, specifically next week. Again, if you can, support me at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. We've got 200 archived editions of classic Parallax Views programs on the Patreon now, and you can definitely listen to those. I've been putting a lot of effort into archiving the classic shows, and I hope my patrons will enjoy them. And with that being said... Until next time... You've been listening to Parallax Views with J.G. Michael. To Parallax Views with J.G. Michael. The way
1: out is not simply to say, don't do it. just to prohibit If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem.